Merciful God, as we enter Holy Week, turn our hearts again to Jerusalem and to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Stir up within us the gift of faith that we may not only praise him with our lips, but may follow him in the way of the cross. Amen. Our Old Testament reading today is Jeremiah 7, 9 through 11. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are safe, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? You know, I too am watching, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. This season of Lent, we have looked each Sunday at a different spiritual practice of the church and a, and a scripture that undergirds uh, that, that practice, that theme. We've looked at the practice and theme of joy and celebration. Another Sunday, we looked at the theme, the practice of study, the practice then of hospitality, the practice of fasting, the practice of confession and forgiveness. Today, we consider the practice of Prayer, the theme of prayer. Our scripture from the New Testament is from Mark chapter 11, verses 15 to 19, and it falls just very shortly after Jesus has come into Jerusalem upon a donkey. The palm branches have been waving, and then after a brief scene with a tree, Jesus enters the temple. We come to Mark eleven fifteen to 19. Then they came to Jerusalem, and Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers." And when the chief priests and scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We just want it to be low-key. We just, we just want some family and friends We just want to be married. Springtime is so often a time of wedding preparations, summer weddings, as a pastor that involves a lot of premarital counseling. And I will tell you, a sentiment I hear every single springtime in those sessions is something like that. The couple, they'll be sharing where they are with their choice of flowers for the service and the reception, the cake, The food and the drink for the rehearsal, the food and the drink for the reception. Who's doing toasts at which settings? What the budget's looking like for a DJ or maybe a band, maybe a soloist. How things are going with the save the dates, the invitation, the placards, the gift bag for the out-of-town guests. How things are going with the decor and the backup plan in case of rain, the registry and the thank you notes. How things are going coordinating with the wedding planner who is necessary because there's so many things that we need this part-time or full-time help, not to mention these choices about 
who's going to be invited, who can't get invited, who's going to be in the wedding party, who's not. All of these really good things. But taken together, they start to take time and energy and money. They even start to carry a certain weight and burden. And so often amidst this, these couples, I see them almost with an Excel spreadsheet in their head. They will lean in at some point and they will sigh and say, but honestly, we, we just want to be married. And if you look at the Presbyterian Church's book of worship, the first statement of marriage says this about marriage. Marriage is a gift God has given to all humankind for the well-being of the entire human family. Marriage is a gift from God. It is the, the enjoining of these two lives and themselves enjoined unto God, with God, for God. Not always easy, hardly without major trial, but, but most fundamentally a, a communion, a gift. And yet when couples lean in and they, and they offer that sigh, I think part of what they are acknowledging is that sometimes the gift starts to get buried under all of these layers that have inadvertently grown up and around and over the most basic treasure at the center. And we're so prone to do this, honestly, in so many arenas of life. Should not, if you have the opportunity to go to college, it be an invitation into deeper learning, wisdom, maturation. But how often at at high school, even the middle school level, there builds this remarkable pressure just to get the grade at any cost to get the right tutors if you can get them so you can get through the many different battery of tests so that you can get to a school with the right name and do enough of the extracurriculars. I mean, the gift of growing in knowledge and wisdom is right there, but Never ill-intended layers can get built right over it and instead a sense of anxiety and burden covers the thing. Or yet again, sports. What a joy it is that God gave us the gift of movement and play alongside friends, colleagues, competition. And yet how, how readily sometimes that arena turns into something more cutthroat, competitive. You need to be doing year-round training. You need to have the right coaches, the select team, the constant travel, the special summer camps, special gear made by the special brand. A certain burden starts to cover over that, which is meant to be a gift. Take a look around, and I think you'll see we have this tendency to receive a gift, and slowly and surely, and, and usually never with ill intention, Build layers, build expectation, and make what was a gift a burden. And it would be foolish to think that that same tendency we have does not find its way into the life of the church. Indeed, Jesus' anger in Mark chapter 11, 15 to 19, is entirely related to this tendency to take even the most central of gifts and make a burden. Some background information I think will help. Mark chapter 11, it's Passover. So Jewish pilgrims from all over the world are are flooding into the city of Jerusalem. And and they'd be flooding in particular into these about 35 acres that made up the arena of the temple court surrounding the temple itself. And as the Jewish people arrived, they had two things expected of them. One, they needed to pay the temple tax. That's how the priesthood was supported. Fair enough. 
The people, however, would arrive with this pagan Roman currency that had Caesar's image on it and an idolatrous image that says Caesar's Lord. Well, that cannot, that should not be in the temple of the true Lord. This required that you needed to exchange currency. You need to hand in your Roman currency, get the kind of currency the temple used, so that you would not defile the temple. These money changers were helpful, even needful, to protect the holiness of the temple. Second expectation, the people needed to bring an animal as a sacrifice for their sins, as per the law. Even the poorest of the poor needed to bring at least a dove or a pigeon, as per Leviticus 5, 7. That's a very inexpensive animal. But it was often impossible to travel all these days with with a live animal. So often the pilgrims would arrive to Jerusalem and look to purchase their animal there at Passover. And there'd these people be setting up tables to, to sell animals. That was a really big help to people so that they could actually do the law. And so these people, they're arriving to the temple courts. They first head over to the, the currency exchange. Need to do that. But the money exchangers had gotten used to the fact that uh, people are going to have to do this. And we have a monopoly. They got into the habit of, of charging some exorbitant rates. And, and people paid. People exchanged. Once the exchange is over, you then go to purchase your animal. Sacrifice of sin. You're going to take it to the priest who's going to do that for you in this most holy moment of release, of freedom, of pronouncement, of forgiveness. And you arrive at the vendor and they have a significant upcharge on the animals. It's perhaps akin to the feeling you may get when you're at a stadium or an airline or a theme park and they charge $15 for a hot dog because they know you're hungry and you've got nowhere else to go. You will pay. It's, of course, so much worse than that. These vendors, they even upcharge on the price of doves. The poor are getting saddled with it. But even if you deal with the exchange rate that is unjust, and you purchase an animal at an unjust rate, still a third problem existed. And historical records show how this thing was building and building. It had become so popular for these money exchangers and and table vendors to set up that they had covered all 35 acres of the temple court with table after table. You could hardly move. And now, of course, at the center of this whole thing is the temple, understood to be the locus of God's holy presence, God's life. But, but all around were all of these layers of expectation, layers of burden, layers of injustice, layers quite literally of tables. All of it done in God's name. All of it keeping people, burdening people. And then one day, Very shortly after Jesus rides into town on a donkey, he enters this temple area, Mark 11, 15 to 19. All four Gospels tell this story. Only two Gospels tell the birth story. Only one Gospel tells the water to wine story. Only one Gospel tells the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the good Samaritan. All four Tell this story as if to underscore whatever you know about Jesus, whatever you think about Jesus, be sure and know this aspect about Jesus, this story of Jesus. 
And this aspect of Jesus is the thing that makes Jesus righteously angry. I mean, piping hot. Will not stand for one more moment of it. And it is when a gift of God's is made a burden. When there are hoops and payments and expectations and all these layers that end up blocking people from the very presence of God and the gift therein. Or put another way, the thing that really makes Jesus angry is when people rob other people of an encounter with the living God. You have made this a den of robbers, Jesus says, quoting from Jeremiah. And what the people have been robbed of is not simply their money, but the joy and the healing and the forgiveness and the life that is known simply in the presence of Of this holy God. When the people are coming to the temple. What they experience is burden. Not life. People are being robbed of this most essential gift. And so Jesus overturns the tables of the money changers. Three of the four gospels specifically record. How Jesus deals with the seats of those who are selling the doves. He seems to single out those who who place any extra burden. Upon the most vulnerable. And then with this righteous anger in full display. These tables and chairs scattered all over. The people being driven out. You can see the chaos of this scene. Jesus makes one other thing happen. It's a detail I have often overlooked in reading this passage before. We read he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Jesus makes sure everyone's empty-handed. No animals, no money, no tables, no chair, no stuff. Why was it important not only to turn everything upside down, start scattering and moving the people, but also that they carry nothing? Have you ever known that moment in a wedding when the couples are holding... There's no flowers. They're not holding actually any of the decisions about the food and the reception and the registry. If they're holding anything, I guess they're holding one another's hands. And they stare into one another's eyes. And in the presence of the congregation and God, they make these vows to one another. They name their commitment to this communion while they rest in the communion of God and the communion they're sharing. Have you seen the charged holiness of that moment? Have you seen a child? Have you yourself? You picked up a book. You started attending lectures. You tried out a new project, working some new handiwork, tried a new piece of music, and and just picked up the joy of learning without an ounce of concern for the grade, the output, the result, the performance, so what will you do with this lingering over you, carried no expectations whatsoever but just received the gift. Have you known the joy therein? Or have you seen a group of children race out into an open field with an old soccer ball wearing none of the right gear with a makeshift goalpost or it's a pickup basketball game or wiffle ball game 
And they don't have the perfect fields or the logoed sports apparel and the rigorous schedule. And, and they play. They carry only themselves onto the field. Have you seen the life therein? I think there is a remarkable beauty when all the layers get cut away, break away, moved aside, and finally we carry nothing and can receive the central gift that had been buried. Jesus commands them, carry nothing. Not only so that he thwarts the injustice right there and then, but also it is a gracious command. Jesus is giving the people a chance to remember in their very bodies what it's supposed to be like to come before the living God. Not a burden, not the weight of injustice, not a headache of exchanges and animal purchases and crowded tables, not a list of impossible expectations. It It is meant to be light. It's meant to be a space where if you do have burden and carry the sin and the guilt, God takes those. How does Jesus put it at one point? Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Come to me. It is this invitation into relationship, this invitation into a communion in which the burden is light. Prayer. Prayer is usually the word we go with when speaking about this central relationship, this central communion. Going back to that Presbyterian directory for for worship, you read this. Prayer is at the heart of worship. Not something we do, not something we think is important, not something we make sure to work in. Prayer is at the heart of worship. It is a gift from God who desires dialogue and relationship with us. We name in our constitution the gift of dialogue and relationship as at the center, as at the heart. So too, of course, does Jesus in our scripture. My house shall be called a house of Prayer, communion for all nations. Do we ever layer over this most basic, central gift? Certainly we build up programs and committees and policies and polity and traditions and routines, almost all of them starting from a good place, a well-intended place. But, but if over time some of them start not to facilitate life but burden, if over time some of them cumulatively start to tire, in fact, the people, and it feels more like we really need to do this, we should do this, I should pull off, uh, show up for this, we really do need to pull this off just like we always pull this off. If, if we start getting so caught up sometimes in, in logistics and emails and details and have not a moment's notice for a moment for communion, how many have left the church over the years because they have not known an encounter with the living God, but somehow have received a message of burden or pressure or expectation that's layered over 
the most central relationship. And remember, when the New Testament speaks of the house of God or the temple of God, the New Testament's not speaking of a building. It is speaking of the people as the temple. I wonder how many layers we temples sometimes build up in our lives. Many of them for perfectly good reasons. We build in commitments and schedules, expectations, trying to to follow God, love neighbor, take care of our family. But one day we have all these different things piling up over and over that it, it feels heavy and we do not know how to access the gift who resides and abides within. Some days would it not be in an entirely unwelcome and also entirely welcome gift if the table of our lives were overturned? If we were again before the living God with nothing but open hands and an attentive heart, nothing but openness to be shaped by God into the person and people we are made to be. The gift we never asked for. It does make me wonder, though, if some of us have known recent pain or disruption in our lives, in our church. Are we frustrated? Upset that things are not like they used to be, the way they need to be going, the right way. We've got all these tables and chairs where we used to sit, we used to do things. Everything seems to be overturned. It all seems to be chaos with this or that. What if it's Jesus? Or at least somewhere in all the overturning, Jesus isn't at work emptying our hands of burdens, drawing us anew to this most basic communion of life. My people, my house, my temple shall be called a house of prayer. The heart of the whole thing, it's communion, it's prayer, it's this relationship out of which life grows. And to be sure, it's not an escapist prayer. For in that space of empty-handedness, Jesus eventually does place something in our hands. Jesus does give us a burden, a task, a concern, a weight of injustice to confront. Jesus absolutely sends us out as the table-turning body of Jesus on earth. The people who do get upset when there is any kind of lair or burden blocking another from access to God's healing, God's provision, God's joy, God's presence. But it starts... And communion. May Jesus free our hands to receive himself this day. Let us pray. God, you remind us that this house and we as your people, your house, are to be centrally about a communion with you. And to know a a life and power and healing therein. Help us in this moment, in the remainder of this service, this day, to open ourselves unto you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.